Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is John Butler, Yale professor, speaking about the surprise of religion in 20th century America. My name is John Butler, and I'm the dean of the graduate school, and I'm going to talk this morning on the surprise of religion in modern America. Um, you might, for those of you who were here for my friend John Gaddis's lecture earlier, you might think that um, you're seeing a conspiracy of all Yale professors who wear blue shirts and red ties, um, but we didn't conspire this morning, so I have my tie is slightly different than his. <laughs> um, since we're going to discuss this subject, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about um, what I do. I've taught at Yale since 1985. I um, am in three departments, American Studies, History, and Religious Studies, and I teach American Religious History. And for many years, I split the field with my colleague, Harry Stout, and he teaches the Puritans and up to the Civil War, and I do the Civil War to the present, although for most of the time, my scholarship has actually been on the 17th and 18th and early 19th centuries. But for several years, I've been switching my work, and I'm actually pursuing a book when I'm not doing administrative things um, called God and Gotham, which is a book about religion in modern Manhattan from roughly the 1870s to the Kennedy election of 1960. So the question is, is there even a subject? Uh, why would anyone write a book, want to write a book on religion in modern Manhattan? Since, as Billy Graham said in 1957, when he came to New York City to do what is now his somewhat famous crusade in 1957, uh, why, when asked the question, why did he want to do a crusade in New York City? His answer was because he wanted to confront Sodom on the subway. And, um, that's really not only the image of modern Manhattan and modern New York, that is, the capital of American secularism, but when we think about the 20th century, we don't think about the role of religion in modern 20th century culture in the same way that we think about the role of religion in 17th century New England. 17th century New England, in New Haven, we make the assumption that religion was important. We make the assumption that religion was central to the founding of this town. We make the assumption that it was central to the founding of New England, to the history of Boston. When we discuss abolitionism and women's rights and the Civil War, we make the assumption, well-documented assumption, that religion was important in shaping the abolitionist movement or shaping educational reform, to say nothing, obviously, of shaping the temperance movement, um, to shape the women's movement, all of that is assumed, and we can continue that uh, toward the end of the 19th century. But when we discuss the 20th century, most Americans don't make an assumption that religion is important in the 20th century. And most Americans would probably think, most of my students whom I've taught for 21 years at this institution would walk into my own course in religion in modern America making the assumption that um, the course is really a kind of archaeological, that is, that we're here to excavate something that they didn't actually see around them. Well, is that the kind of society that we live in? Ask the last two presidential candidates about the role of religion in modern American politics. Read The New Republic, or The Nation, or The National Review, 
over the last three, four, five, seven, and ten years and ask, how many articles have you not seen and have you seen on religion in modern American politics? Ask the heads of the Republican and Democratic parties whether or not they hire paid consultants to determine for them how not only the evangelical vote will break, but in fact how the Catholic vote will break, how the Jewish vote will, will break, how it will break in different regions. Why is it that in the United States every presidential candidate must say something about religion, must say something in the last presidential uh, contest and in the previous presidential contest, the main candidates tripped over each other in explaining their religiosity, each one trying to outdo the other. In modern France, in the last French presidential contest, many French voters did not even know that the socialist candidate Lionel Jospin was a Protestant. They didn't actually even know that. And to be a Catholic in modern French politics is irrelevant. And that's generally true even in Great Britain. Thirty years ago, the British Labour Party was still sometimes called the Methodist Church annual meeting without bishops because almost all members of the Labour Party were Methodists and they were good and clear and well-attending Methodists in a society when almost no one attended church. And the Conservatives were all members of the Church of England in a society where almost no one attended church. But even that has disappeared from British politics. Mr. Blair no longer says anything about religion and it's unimportant in modern British politics. There is no new Christian right in modern British politics. It simply doesn't exist. And then to go to think about uh, Italy, to think about Scandinavia, we have to look at Poland and Ireland. And since the fall of communism, the importance of Catholicism in Polish politics has declined. And Ireland has undergone an almost thoroughgoing revolution in terms of the relationship between religious, religion and modern Irish politics in the sense um, that as Ireland has become among the leading economic uh, forces in the, the modern uh, Europe and have become among the more affluent societies, the role of traditional Catholic politics has declined. So the question is then, there must be a, a, a subject here because look at the way it plays out in modern American politics, the way it's going to play out this fall and the way it's going to play out in the next presidential campaign. So our question is, okay, if there seems to be a subject at the end of the 20th century or the beginning of the 21st century, what happened between the Civil War and 1995. Well, what I want to suggest to you, of course, is that if you were, if you remember back to the American, if you took American history at Yale or elsewhere and you remember back to your textbook, or if your children have recently taken American history and you look at their textbook, whether it's a high school textbook or a college textbook, I will say with the exception of textbooks published approximately in the last three years, 
Look at the way in which American historians treat the subject of religion as they move from European colonization to the beginning of the 21st century. As I've already suggested, yes, the Puritans are important, and they were religious. They were important because they were religious, because they were religious. And the textbook will actually say something about theology. It may be the only place in the textbook in which theology is discussed, but that's okay. Theology is actually discussed. Something will probably be said about predestination in, a in an American history textbook about the Puritans. Now, we have to sort of skip over Virginia and Maryland because, generally speaking, no one attaches religion as being particularly important in the formation and founding of the, of, of the Chesapeake, except for the founding of Maryland, when Roman Catholicism is important, but 10 years after the founding of Maryland, the subject of religion isn't discussed at all. And I would say, if, we were doing a, if I were doing a lecture on 17th century America, I would explain to you why that's probably appropriate, but let's skip that part. Then we do the 18th century, the so-called Great Awakening or 18th century revivals. Jonathan Edwards, clearly important. Virtually 95% of all the great Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards' papers are housed at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. And uh, they are critically important to understanding religion in 18th century America. And so are the revivals. And then we come to the 19th century, abolitionism, in which religion is linked to abolitionism, women's, women's rights, social reform of all kinds. Religion is critical um, to the shaping of the Civil War, as Abraham Lincoln argued in his second inaugural address. Both sides prayed to the same God, and both sides invoked God to support their views on slavery or to support their views on abolition. And that wasn't an accident. But what happens to religion in the textbooks when we move into the 1880s and 1890s? The names of religious groups are to be found. Protestants are there because they're fearful of Catholics who are immigrating to America in increasing numbers. And Protestants move to shape their identity in part by becoming increasingly anti-Catholic and also increasingly anti-Semitic because of the large-scale migration of Jews. So the word Catholic is to be found and the word Jew is to be found in American history textbooks, but almost nothing is said about worship. Almost nothing is said about theology. Mainly they are immigrant groups. It is true that something may be said about religion and has to be said about religion in considering social reform between 1895 and the, and, the, and the Great War or the First World War because of the importance of the social gospel. And so Walter Rauschenbusch will pop into the textbook. But Walter Rauschenbusch pops into the textbook largely because of his importance in changing politics and in reforming American society. And then what happens after the social gospel, which most of the textbooks will also tell you was a failure. Generally speaking, they're probably right. Where do we get religion between the social gospel about 1900, 1905, 1910, and the rise of the new Christian right in the 1970s and the 1980s? Probably only a couple of places. One would be some discussion of the 1925 Scopes trial, the trial about the teaching of evolution in Tennessee. 
in which there will also be an allied picture, two kinds of pictures, one a, a, a picture of Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan, and the other, not connected to the trial, but a picture of Billy Sunday, the preacher who was a former baseball player, in showing him pitching in a rather awkward pose. And the paragraphs, except for textbooks written in the last three years, the textbooks will ensure you that the Scopes trial represented the death of fundamentalism in America, coordinated very nicely with the physical death of William Jennings Bryan shortly after the trial. Okay. Then where do we get religion next? Well, usually the only place that you'll pop up before the rise of the new Christian right is with some reference to Martin Luther King as a Baptist preacher. But most textbooks don't spend much more time on his secular politics and don't say very much about his religious background. Sometimes there is a discussion of liberal Christianity and its relationship to the movement against the war in Vietnam, and sometimes there is not. Where do we get religion again? In a kind of full-blown fashion, with relationship to American politics in almost all the textbooks, in a discussion of the new Christian right. That is, the rise of conservative evangelical politics. And here, um, this becomes what I've called a jack-in-the-box phenomena. That is, it just pops up. And it's a place in which American historians don't explain anything. They don't explain those odd references to the death of fundamentalism in the Scopes trial in, 19, in 1925. They don't explain where the new Christian right came from. They don't say to you very much about religion in the 1930s or during World War II or during the 1950s or so much in the 1960s. It just pops up out of nowhere. And then somewhat persistently, we get a reference to religion and politics almost exclusively in terms of the new Christian right, in terms of American electoral politics. How do we explain the election of Bill Clinton? Because the evangelical right deserted the first President Bush. He didn't pay attention to them. They didn't come out in the same numbers that they came out for his first election, and therefore he lost. He was, wasn't so much that uh, evangelical voters voted for Bill Clinton is that they didn't come out to vote um, for George Bush. And then we had the election of 2000 and the election of 2004 in which we can shorthand our discussion by just noting one simple fact and that is that President Bush is most likely our president for one simple reason and that is despite the massive voter turnout drive led by the American labor movement in Ohio in 2004, which was unprecedented and turned out probably more voters than the labor movement has ever turned out in its history. Conservative evangelical Christians turned out even more voters. And they turned them out in every Ohio city, they turned them out in every Ohio suburb, they turned them out in what remains of rural Ohio. Not much of Ohio is truly very rural. They turned them out everywhere, and they, and, and they provided the margin. Most all political analysts will say that they provided the margin for President Bush's re-election. So now we have a problem. Okay? Now we have religion present at the very gut level of our politics. 
And we have almost no description of where, how this could be in the 20th century and where it came from. What happened to the, those fundamentalists, all of whom died in the embarrassment of the Scopes trial in 1925? Where did this, where, how could this be? It's just a surprise. It's just a jack-in-the-box. So that's the task of historians. And it's even more surprising and more interesting, I think, because, in fact, the decline of religion, what we take as the secularization thesis, the idea that society would become less and less religious and more and more secular, was a powerful notion in the 1890s, 1900, 1905, 1910. The great German socio sociologist Max Weber predicted the demise of religion in the advance of industrialization, urbanization, the end of face-to-face -face society, especially the bureaucratization of society, and what he called the rationalization of society. He saw religion essentially as a pre-modern form, as something that, would that could only flourish in face-to-face -face societies and only flourished because there were no other mechanisms available to explain how the world came into being, what the world was, and where it was going. But the advance of science, the decline of face-to-face -face society, the growth of anonymity, Weber believed would mark the end of religion. Sigmund Freud, the great psychologist, believed that religion should end. He saw it as a great superstition, as something truly left over not only from the pre-modern period, but from the ancient period, from the origins of, of humankind. And he did not care for religion. Freud was truly a secularist. And so you have this intellectual uh, baggage that shaped the way many Americans, many Europeans, thought about, think about the nature of religion in modern times. Religion is not something that in 1900, 1905, and 1910, anyone thought was synonymous with modernity. Whatever modernity was, whatever marks the difference between the pre-modern and the modern, you wouldn't associate, and intellectuals didn't associate religion with the modern. And so too with almost all religious leaders in the United States between the 1880s and the 1920s. Whether we are speaking about Catholic bishops, whether we are speaking about old-line Protestants, whether we are speaking about immigrant rabbis, virtually all of them were petrified about the role and the future of religion in New York City, but in Chicago, in Cleveland, in Savannah, they're also petrified about the role of religion in rural America. Report after report from the 1880s to the 1920s detailed the crisis of religion in modern times, the growth of secularism, uh, the absence of belief, the indifference to morality, which was assumed to be connected to religion. Rabbis discussed this subject Roman Catholic bishops discussed the subject. Protestants discussed the subject. Their discussions were different. Protestants were indeed concerned about their loss of hegemony or control or power in an old America. Whether they ever had it 
is a question that we historians would debate. Okay? Not all historians think that they ever really had it. But in any case, and I'm one of them, but in any case, they developed the idea that they did have it. So an idea, for example, that America was a Christian nation is not one, I assure you, that the president of Yale, Ezra Stiles, ever held to, or that hardly anybody ever discussed in America in the period of the American Revolution. That was an idea that came forward in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, and especially at the end of the 19th century by faced with so many new religions in America that seemed to challenge a traditional understanding of Christianity, which was that it was really Protestantism. So the idea of America as a Christian nation became much more popular in the 19th century than it ever was at the time of the American Revolution. Ezra Stiles was worried about America in the 1770s and the 1780s, and he was worried about the First Amendment for a very simple reason. He, was, he had never lived in a society in which the state did not compel religion, in which the state did not support religion, in which the state did not support a single church. And he was concerned that this new experiment signified in the 16 words of the First Amendment to the federal constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof. The first time that such an idea had ever been enunciated in any Western society, he was afraid of that idea. He worried about it. What would happen to morality in Connecticut? What would happen to morality in the United States if there wasn't a state church? That had always been, from, their from his perspective, from the perspective of many other religious leaders, there had always been a state church. So American religious leaders in the 1890s are concerned about urbanization, industrialization, anonymity. They had never experienced religion. They had no history of carrying religion forward outside of a face-to-face -face agrarian society. How would it survive? They were worried about it. All of them were worried about religious pluralism. It's true that we can trace the history of pluralism or diversity, religious diversity, in America from the colonial period forward. As early as the 1690s, the governor of New York, Thomas Dongan, discussed the many religious groups already present in New York City. He found it sort of intriguing but also bewildering. His description doesn't necessarily express fear, he just thought it was interesting that there were so many different religions already in New York in the 1690s. By the 1830s, American Protestants were worried about the influx of Roman Catholics and began to pass legislation attacking the, uh, the ability of an archdiocese to own church property. They, forced the, they, they, they passed legislation in many states that only local boards could own church property because they didn't want the Archdiocese of Massachusetts or the Archdiocese of Boston to own all of the church properties in and around Boston, etc. It happened in many states. Uh, Catholics and Jews were worried about the immigration, I'm sorry, Catholics and Protestants were worried about the immigration of Jews in America, especially after 1880, the large number of, of Jews coming from Eastern Europe. Jews were worried about what would happen to Jews in this new society where there was no shtetl, where one's definition, religious definition, was not imposed from the outside by discrimination and by forcibly living in a single community 
apart from everybody else, but where Jews were mixed with everyone else and would have choices. And so too were Roman Catholics worried about choices, and so too were Protestants. So they not only worried then about industrialization, urbanization, bureaucratization, but they worried about pluralism. No one had ever experienced pluralism at this massive level before. They had no experience with it at all. There was no history of this kind of experience with religious diversity. And so it's little wonder that not only did, did Weber argue, in a sense on the basis of history, that religion wouldn't survive modernity. We can discount Freud because Freud's ideas are really endemic to his beliefs as opposed to uh, a kind of prediction. It's something that Freud wanted secularization. He thought it was better. Um, but we have Weber and the religious leaders all concerned about the religious future of this society. So how is it if this, we have all of these leaders concerned and we have this new form, how is it then that we have the politics we do in the United States, we have the society that we do in the United States, that this building actually houses a, a reasonably flourishing congregation when in modern France, in modern England, I will assure you that attendance at most structures like this is on a typical Sabbath, mostly American and Asian tourists who easily outnumber. Church attendance in Great Britain runs from 3 to 5% of the population on a given Sabbath. In Scandinavia, it's even lower than that. In France, it's, it's reasonably great at Easter, and then Americans and Asian tourists outnumber everybody else at Notre Dame and Paris on every other Sunday. And that's who's there. So how could this be? So let me offer some possible solutions. First is that for lay people, what I would suggest is that immigration from Europe became a theologizing or a religious experience of its own kind. Why? Because whatever the relatively low level of their affiliation in Europe, and perhaps in part by accident, virtually all American, virtually all traditional religious groups in America began to act as centers for ethnic and community identity. Whether they were Finnish immigrants on the Minnesota and uh, northern Michigan uh, iron ranges, whether they were Italian Catholics in New York, whether they were German immigrants in the Midwest, everywhere congregations began to act as places where Germans and Finns and Italians began to congregate. They perhaps congregated in some regards more than they worshiped. And how do we know that? Because we already know that the Lutheran church in Finland was in deep trouble in Finland in the 1880s and the 1890s. Soren Kierkegaard described the difficulties of Scandinavian Protestantism, the utter lethargy of Scandinavian Protestantism throughout most of the 19th century. He described it as a disgrace that local Lutheran ministers were, were a disgrace to what he regarded as the Christian gospel. 
in part because they just leaned on their state salary. They were functionaries. They didn't need to go out and get anybody. The state paid their salary. And they were agents of the state, and in some regards distrusted. Reports of Roman Catholic bishops in Chicago and New York will tell you of the, their difficulties with anti-clerical Italian immigrants. Why were Italian immigrants so frequently anti-clerical in New York and Chicago, for example? What was the attitude of the papacy toward Italian unification in the 19th century? The papacy was deathly afraid of Italian unification in the 19th century. The papacy flourished on its connections to the local Italian principalities. And the last thing the papacy in fact wanted, and this is in fact true, was a unified Italy because it was fearful of a, of the, of a, of a secularizing Italian state. And many Italians did want that state. And they emigrated to America in part, not wholly by any means, they mainly immigrated to America for material and economic reasons, but they also emigrated to America because they saw no future for Italian nationalism at home. So where was the future for Italian nationalism? As, the Archdi as, as Catholic authorities in New York and Boston learned more by accident and sometimes grudgingly, the future for Italian nationalism might be in the American parish. It might be in an ethnic identity in an American parish, whether it's in Chicago or New York or other American cities. On the Minnesota Iron Range and the, and the Michigan Iron Range, two kinds of congregational life sprang up, both somewhat, one less surprising than the other. The least surprising was the influence of, the Ameri of, the, of what will become the Communist Party. Because the Communist Party, Marxists had been active in Finland in the 1880s and the 1890s. And they translated that activity to the Minnesota Iron Range and the, and the, and the Northern Michigan Iron Range. And who would become more than 50% of the membership of the American Communist Party from the 1900 into the 1960s? Minnesota and Michigan Finns who gathered every Sunday to discuss Marxism and who acted as though they, they looked a lot like a religious congregation except that they were Marxists. That's the least surprising congregational group. The most surprising congregational group was the plethora of new Lutheran congregations on the Minnesota and Michigan Iron Ranges. State church Lutheranism imported from Finland, evangelical Lutheranism which then split into two, three, four, and five varieties. By 1905, there were at least 10 different evangelical Lutheran groups working on the Minnesota and Michigan Iron Ranges. And that story can be re replicated for Welsh Baptists who split into many different groups in America. And it can be replicated for German Lutherans and German Calvinists who fissured in America into many different groups. But what was typical of their work was that they were localized in congregations. And they served social as well as religious functions. Therefore, what typified America by 1900 and 1910 was a plethora of congregations. Everywhere one looked, and you could have seen it in the city of New Haven. What worried Protestants in New Haven in the 1890s? The influx of Roman Catholics 
They were petrified. The old leaders of Yale, who were not Roman Catholic, were allied with the local Protestant establishment, and they were worried about the influx of Roman Catholics into the city. So New Haven was one, together with Hartford, Protestants in New Haven and Hartford were leaders in a new technique to figure out what to do. What did they do? They became Christian sociologists. They soon began, they developed a survey. The city of New Haven was one of the earliest cities surveyed door to door by Protestant mission workers who went with a form that looked just like a sociology form. What was your name? What was your nationality? How many children did you have? What was your religion? Did you go to church? Were your children baptized? Did you have a Bible in your home? Did your children attend Sunday school? Marked all of these down and then they counted. And to their horror, they discovered that not only were most New Haveners Roman Catholic, but they actually went to church. Uh, and they weren't very, say, they thought that the survey would produce a lot of indifferent Roman Catholics and that they could therefore missionize them, they could therefore convert them, so they could therefore flood the city with Protestant workers who would convert all of these uh, indifferent Roman Catholics and they would then fill up these nice Protestant churches on the green. Well, that part didn't work. What the part that was working was parish life in the city of New Haven. And that's the basis for so much contemporary, that is, 20th century American religiosity. It's the way Americans increasingly began to learn and to live. They integrated their social life with their religious life. It's where you met someone who would ultimately become a girlfriend, a boyfriend, and a spouse. And yes, there were problems of people who in public high schools began to have attraction for someone of another religion, and that presented a crisis. But nonetheless, most marriage patterns that we know about in the 20th century are religiously homogenous. And that's surprising compared to what we know about Europe. So we have the development of congregational life. And all you need to do is walk around the city of New Haven and look at the number of churches. Not just the churches we know about on the green, but them all over. And this is true for churches and true for synagogues as well even in Manhattan. The next time you are in Manhattan, don't just walk by and drop in to St. Patrick's Cathedral because it's a great tourist attraction. Okay? You can do that, that's great. But as you walk around Manhattan, begin to count the number of church structures stuck into weird places. Uh, they're, they're stuck into weird places just like office buildings, and they're all over the city. Hundreds of synagogues hundreds of church buildings just squeezed into odd little places here and there. The suburbs. Look at the suburbs. We oftentimes think that the suburbs were shaped by the shopping center. Let me suggest to you that if there was a collective force shaping the suburbs, the American suburbs developed from 1945 to 1960, it was congregational life. All of the American denominations, Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish alike, developed enormous plans of how to deal with the suburbs, where to place congregations. They, they, they developed surveys in, in suburban New York, in Connecticut, outside of Chicago, in every American place, with the possible exception, one exception probably is Seattle, which remains uh, the single most secular, Seattle is the most secular city in America. Se Seattle has few, less religious institution adherence than any other city in America.
So uh, it's distinctive in that, in that fashion. Um, everywhere, America suburbanized, and as it suburbanized, it congregationalized. And therefore, the congregation, where were people going? Yes, they went to the shopping center, but on their way to the shopping center and on their way back from the shopping center, where did they stop? They stopped at a Roman Catholic church basement. They stopped at a synagogue basement. They stopped at a Baptist church basement. Why? Because that's where the youth league was. That's where the senior meeting was. That's where they could get infant care. That's where they could provide, that's where they could find marriage counseling. And that leads to the second point that I want to make. American religion also became therapeutic in character. That is, it distinctly served the perceived needs of the laity, far more than was ever true in Europe. The congregation, Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish alike, became uh, a, a social center. In Jewish life, it, it was called, and laughingly called, the shmuel with a pool. Protestants didn't uh, support their congregations quite to the extent that, that some Jewish congregations were supported, so there was no pool. But they had groups for infants, young children, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged adults, seniors, the married, the divorced, people in transition. They did provide marriage counseling. They provided, where did you go when someone died? Who did you talk to? You talked to a, a, a clergyman. Who provided marriage counseling? A clergyman who probably had taken psychology courses after 1930 in every seminary in the United States. So we have a kind of secularization, if that's the way you want to put it, secularization of the seminaries, which then turns out a religious product. Ordained clergyman. And in this regard, what was important is that you was much more important, especially as you come into the 1950s, that you simply believed. Some of the older members of the audience will remember a famous song in the 1950s called I Believe. I believe for every drop of, I won't sing it, all right? But uh, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. So my comment on that, yes, you'd hope that were the case. But in any case, um, and you, it's important that you simply believe. It was more important to believe than it was to be a Catholic. It was more important to believe than it was to be a Protestant or a Presbyterian. It was more important to believe than it was to be a Jew. You simply believed. And all of them, who did we worship? The same God. Became endemic to the way in which Americans increasingly thought about religion. So the denominational identity became fuzzed. Whereas it was very important before the Second World War, it was much less important after the Second World War. It coordinates with growing heterogeneity in marriage. Not only did Protestants, did Presbyterians marry Episcopalians, but Presbyterians married a Catholic, right? or they married a Jew. And intermarriage became increasingly rampant after the Second World War. And that fits with this increasingly non-denominational approach to religion. Ultimately, what happens is that it's more important to be a conservative Catholic, a liberal Catholic, a conservative Presbyterian, a conservative Jew, I mean that with a small c, not this large c of the denomination, a conservative Jew or a liberal Jew. That, and then 
conservative Catholics, conservative Jews, and conservative Protestants began to get together. And if the name of their politics is the new Christian right, they shared affinities. So over the last 15 years, notice the degree to which either the right to life movement or the women's rights movement has had believers and belongers from each of the major denominational traditions. It's less important, therefore, to be so a, so a conservative Catholic, a conservative Protestant, and a conservative Jew can all support the anti-abortion movement. And a liberal Catholic, a liberal Protestant, a liberal Jew can also support women's right, a woman's right to choose. And they will each do it for religious reasons. And so the United States is back to the pattern in a peculiar kind of way that Abraham Lincoln identified in the middle of the Civil War, that everyone is praying to the same God, but for different purposes. But what's important here is that they're praying to the same God, or they're praying to God, or they're praying to the divine, or they're praying, they're doing something that invokes the supernatural, they're doing something that invokes the transcendent. And in this society, the super, super, the, the, uh, the supernatural, the transcendent, therefore is important in a way in which it is not important in modern Britain or France, certainly in terms of collective public life. Our collective public life is in fact dominated to a remarkable degree by our religious dialogue. And this is hardly true at all for any Western society. So when we discuss values in our society, we know that in some quarters, that's a code word for religion. We use certain kinds of code words, faith-based. Okay? So in our society, because we do have the First Amendment and because we have, have observed it for a, a long time, it's, you know, one wouldn't want to advocate um, aid to religious groups, tax mon taxpayer money going to religious groups, so we say uh, they're faith-based because it's a kind of, we shift the vocabulary, it becomes a euphemism. But we all know perfectly well what it means. It means religious. So faith-based, it's not like a sociologist invented our modern political vocabulary. It's a jargon. But we all, every person in this room knows exactly what faith-based means. But what society, Britain isn't discussing faith-based aid as a, as, a, as a dividing point among its voter population, and France isn't, and, and Italy isn't, and, and Spain isn't in the main, and uh, Poland isn't, and Finland isn't, but we do it in the United States. The third point that I'd make, so we have congregationalism and the impact of congregational life in our own daily lives. We have the, the turn to therapy, therapeutic religion, religion that helps you get over the world, through the, wor through the world. It solves your problems. It helps you with problems. It's signified, I suppose, in many regards by Norman Vincent Peale's famous 1952 bestseller, The Power of Positive Thinking. Uh, most historians, when they write about um, uh, when they write about the author, will emphasize the positive thinking part. But I want to point you to the second word of the title: the power of positive thinking. This is a book for the 20th century. It's a book for modernity. What distinguishes one of one of the features that distinguishes modernity from pre-modernity is that we have the audacity 
to say that we will control the present and the future. We are interested in power, pure, unadulterated power. John Edwards thought, in the main, you had to learn to deal with the world as it had been created. You had to learn to deal with the way uh, the world as it, as it evolved. And we often didn't understand it. We believe we understand it. We believe we're going to control it. And the terror of the 20th century probably is that we have tried to do some of that. And we live in some of the results. So Norman Vincent Peale's book was a book that would have been odd in the 19th century, much less the 18th or the 17th, but in the 20th century, it was the power part, the power of positive thinking. He went to empower real estate agents and corporation executives and secretaries and, and professors to deal with the world in the best possible way. He would have tried to control that fire engine. Right? Uh, so Jonathan Edwards would have said, can't do anything about that. Um, in modernity, we try to control all these uncontrollable events. The third point is a much longer one. Religion has long been identified with American identity. Religion didn't, was not, I would argue, a shaping force of the American Revolution, but it came to support the revolution. Presbyterians in 1775 and 1776 issued statements worried about a possible war. Why? Because so many Presbyterians in the United States had undergone a civil war in Scotland in the 1740s and they knew the death and destruction that it brought. And they issued statements urging Presbyterians to be cautious. As the revolution developed, they became much more supportive. So did other religious groups. Then, in the aftermath of the First Amendment, religious groups not only learned that they had to compete with each other, they had to organize, and to organize in a society that they also supported and identified with. So they simultaneously be they became American in the sense that they believed in competition, they believed in organizing this on their own, and they went ahead to do it. And there are some amazing results. In 1783, there were five Methodist congregations in the United States, the new United States. Why? The movement had barely gotten started in the 1760s, and then, disastrously, on the eve of the American Revolution, John and Charles Wesley vigorously supported the crown and called back most of the Methodist ministers in America. So they suffered the stigma of association with the Tories. By 1830, the Methodist Church was the largest single denomination in the United States. They overcame that stigma through adroit organization, clever preaching, obscuring their politics in the period of the American Revolution to move out in front of all other religious groups. They are the ones who exemplified an adaptation to the First Amendment. They would do it on their own. So too would Presbyterians, so too would Baptists. And they significant numbers from the 1810s to the 1840s, and then increased their numbers in the 1880s, 1900s. Uh, so too did Jews. 
learning to organize themselves in New York, in Chicago, in the major, major urban areas. They had already done that in early Ger German Jewish immigration between 1810 and 1840 as Jews spread out through the whole of the United States. And there still remain in the United States enormous numbers of the remains of old Jewish synagogues, most of which are no longer, many of which are no longer operating because as America has industrialized, uh, Jews have moved to the larger cities and therefore the congregations can't support themselves. But you can see the remnants of these congregations all over the United States. Everywhere um, American religion became identified with American identity. It wasn't accidental that Americans prayed, as Lincoln thought, to the same God in the Civil War. It wasn't accidental that we've always had a chaplaincy during all the American wars. It isn't accidental that American religion of so many varieties was associated with anti-communism in the 1950s. And if, if the Methodist Church suffered problems in the 1950s because some of its bishops were identified as far too leftish and far too liberal cozying up to communists. And there were accusations about Methodist bishops launched before the House on American Activities Committee. And American dissenters, David Dellinger, Roman Catholic priests, the Berrigan brothers, made the argument during, this, during the anti-Vietnam War movement that their identity as Americans, and in the Berrigan's case as Catholics, compelled their opposition to the war. And the two were synonymous, that they were as much Americans as was General Westmoreland and President Nixon or President Johnson. And their religion was central to that American identity. So that whether we think about congregational life and its proliferation across America, whether, it's, whether we think about the, the character of American religion, highly therapeutic, serving social needs for many Americans, or we think about the association of religion with American identity and American purpose, these set American religion in good part apart from most, if not all, of the kind of religious form that one finds throughout Western Europe. And they make America a unique and exceptional society. They give our politics and our society a different feel, a different touch. European tourists coming to America are oftentimes completely puzzled by the degree, by American behavior on uh, Friday night or Sunday morning. They don't understand it. Uh, I once told a British TV documentary crew that if they really wanted to stay, understand the subject of what was here doing a document, uh, documentary film on American religion, um, that if they really wanted to understand American religion, they should just drive from, Indi they were going to Indianapolis. I said, here's what you do, don't fly from Indianapolis to Chicago as was their plan, drive. All you need to do, I'm not going to say anything else, just drive. And take any road you want, just drive. So when they got to Chicago, they called and said, we get it. <laughs> because, why? Because they can see it everywhere. It's present in our landscape. Drive anywhere in America. This isn't the same as driving through rural France or rural, rural Britain, in part because the buildings are alive. They're not historical artifacts. That may be good. It may be bad. We may like or not like the phenomena. We may be happy or unhappy by the way in which religion inflects American politics, 
That's not the point of a scholar. It's not the point, my point as a historian. I don't actually care about those particular, whether it's good or bad. My job is to, is to look at the landscape and say, what is it and how did it get here? And that's why religion shouldn't be a surprise in the 20th century. It shouldn't be a surprise because it's been with us all this time. Some of the older readers, uh, so the older uh, members of this audience will also remember Norman Mailer's great uh, World War II novel, The Naked and the Dead. Mailer, a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn who went to Harvard, is not regarded as among the more pious members of modern American society. He wasn't at the time. Read the first hundred pages. The novel's a bit too long, that's okay. Read the first hundred pages and notice in 1947, 46 and 47, how it is that Mailer sketched every main character in the novel. The novel is set in, in, in the Pacific Ocean, uh, in, in the Pacific Theater, and it describes the experiences of American soldiers. Every character is primarily identified by his religion, every single one, including the secular Jew. Every one of the characters is identified by his religion. And this is from Norman Mailer. Historians ought to take a clue from a novelist like Mailer. And we need to take clues from, in a sense, our literary establishment. Many of our authors have written about religion in a way that much more fulsomely, novelists have written much more fulsomely about religion in the way in which it shapes people's lives for better or worse than have American historians. I don't think that's necessarily because historians are anti-religious. It's just not, it hasn't been part of the vocabulary. From my perspective, fortunately, over the last five to ten years, that has changed. The New York Times hardly ever used to report on religion at all. And neither, for that matter, did the Chicago Tribune or did the, Milwaukee, did the Milwaukee Journal. It wasn't just an evil conspiracy of the New York Times. Hardly any newspaper reported on religion as a part of American life very much until the presidential election of 2000. And increasingly, newspapers now pay attention to these kinds of issues. And they should. Why? Because they're shaping the way that Americans live. I dare suggest they're shaping the way that you live. They're shaping the way Americans vote. They're shaping the way Americans think. And that's been happening for a long, long time. To conclude, let me give you some numbers. The patterns of the past are mythic. The time of the American Revolution, historians can demonstrate, and I will assure you, thoroughly that less than 20% of adult white Americans were associated with any kind of religious congregation. That's not to say that 80% of Americans were irreligious. I'm simply telling you they didn't belong to a congregation. That figure moves up to 30 and 35% in the antebellum period, the 1840s, 1850s, and the eve of the Civil War. It moves up slightly into the 40th and 45th percent range in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. It then stays about there through the 1920s and 30s when it dips a little. The depression was not good to American uh, church and synagogue membership. A lot of people withdrew for a very simple reason. They couldn't afford it. And where is the, where is the bulge? The bulge comes from 1945 to 1965. 
That's when synagogue and church membership crossed the 50% line for adults and moved up to 60%. It's been around there between 60 and 65%, maybe as low as 58% um, ever since. There have been internal changes. The old mainline denominations are losing over the last 20 years. The evangelical denominations are gaining. It's dropped slightly, but not very much, probably into the, into the upper 50s. Um, the interest, what's interesting about it, what demonstrates the power of it? When polling organizations go to poll Americans, so we know that the actual figures run to roughly 58 to 63% of adults belong. 80 to 85% of all Americans claim a religious membership. So we have many denominations out scrounging for the 20% who say they're Presbyterians, but they don't see them in the pews. They don't see their collections. They don't see them, their belonging. Why would they claim that? Because, because they feel they want to? Because they feel they need to? Probably all of those things. So we have, instead of a lack of a subject, we have a really fascinating subject because the subject is, how did all this happen? We ought to know how this happened. It sets our society apart. We're not the same. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to answer a few questions, and there's a microphone. If you raise your hand, we'll see if we can. Uh, there's a question right there. Hi, could you comment on a couple of things related to one of your last remarks about the 45 to 65? There's obviously some relationship to the baby boom generation and the forces that, that shaped it. There's also an observation that I've, that I've heard about people's participation in, in church or synagogue around the time that they're forming families and when children are young, where that decreases and then increases again at, in the senior years. Can you comment on those two things in the relation yes. to what you're saying? I think the question is, um, how do you account for the rise from about 45% to 65% after the Second World War? And does it have to do with family life and does it have to do with the baby boom? Um, well, in fact, all of that is true. Um, and it signifies the way in which congregations began to serve the needs of families, and families perceived that their needs could be fulfilled by the congregations. In addition, I think there's also something that's left over from the Second World War, and I didn't, so I'm compressing huge amounts of material into 45 to 55 minutes here. Um, during the Second World War, the United States arm, all the United States Armed Forces ran a massive campaign because the generals realized that they would have an unprecedented religiously diverse soldiery during the Second World War. No, none of them knew what to do with this. Catholics, Protestants, and Jews all, all fighting for America. They didn't want them fighting with each other. And so they developed a program with 20,000 chaplains in the United States that emphasized the idea of Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. All of them worship the same God. And this idea that these denominations all worship the same God, who supported democracy and was the basis for American activity in the Second World War, also stretches over into anti-communism uh, during the late 1940s and then throughout the 1950s. So there's a political dimension and theological dimension to this as well. 
That's not to say that the chaplaincy program worked well. There were a lot of tensions between Jews, Catholics, and Protestants among soldiers in the Second World War. A lot of bitterness, a lot of anger. Read Norman Mailer. Um, and Mailer is quite right in the way in which he describes a lot of tensions among the soldiers. But there are also, many soldiers came home with a different idea about religion and a different idea about religion in public and private life than they began with when they, when they took basic training. And this comes through in memoirs of chaplains, for example, who, who in fact would repeat their sermons that they had given to soldiers in their own congregations after the Second World War, when they, they too returned home. And they describe how now they visited with a rabbi, they visited with a priest, they visited a Lutheran, visited with a Presbyterian. They hadn't done that before. Very wary relationships among the clergy before the Second World War. It's not to say, again, it was so cozy after the Second World War, but it was much different. And so when you add that to the, social, to the idea of social service, the idea of, of uh, congregation is a good place, why, why would, why, many of you have children. Uh, many of you have children who are in turn joining congregations, I want to suggest. Some of those children are themselves somewhat indifferent about religion. Why would they then join a congregation? We know why they join a congregation, because they think it's good for their family. They think it's good for children. And the parents may be may have, again, indifferent views about this, but they see it as being something good. As, 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 as someone said to me once, it's good I want my son to think about someone, something other than himself for two hours in the week. And that's why a somewhat indifferent religious, a somewhat indifferent person actually joins the very vigorous member of a congregation, um, uh, well, in Hamden. In Hamden. And I think that's very important. It's seen as the center of American, the congregation is often seen as the center, of the, other than the family, of the center of American family life. That's not necessarily true um, in Scandinavia or Great Britain or France. Another question. Way in the back, I think. Oh, oh, okay. go, go ahead, go ahead. Would you comment on the influx of Muslims? I live in San Diego, California, and we have a lot of them, and yes. we have wonderful talks with a, a Muslim, a Monsignor, a Protestant, and a Jewish rabbi, and I'd like to hear your comment. Sure. Thank you. Um, uh, Muslim immigration uh, to the United States is just the latest form of American religious diversity. That, as a historian, what else could I say? By 1690s, we had uh, Presbyterians, Episcop uh, members of the Church of England, Jews, um, we, we had Africans who, who worshipped in a traditional African fashion, all in New York City. Uh, Americans, on the one hand, have been increasing their religious diversity century by century, and we're still doing that. And, it, and, the, and the immigration of Muslims to the United States is simply part of a larger world pattern of which the United States has been an exemplar for 300 years. And Americans, some Americans, have complained about that for 300 years. Some Americans have found it difficult. They found it difficult to understand religious diversity in New York in, in 1710. They found it, they actually opposed, in Boston in the 1690s, they opposed the settlement of French Protestants, okay, who had escaped from France after Louis XIV ended 
uh, free Protestant worship in France. Why didn't they want French? They would have thought, ah, here are Protestants who exemplify the evils of Catholicism, as Puritans would have thought. Why didn't they want them in Boston? Because they celebrated Christmas. What was wrong with the celebration of Christmas? The Puritans thought that only Catholics celebrated Christmas. And so therefore, they must be secret Catholics if they celebrated Christmas. So they didn't want them. They wanted to shut down their celebration of Christmas. So Americans have been complaining. They complained about the Irish. They complained, they, they've complained about Jews. They've complained about every new. We complain about Scientology. We complain about every new religious group. So that's the same. It's, it's, that's an old American story, from my perspective, regrettably. That's an old American story as well. But, um, and we've also had many different kinds of groups that look very strange. What group could have looked stranger and did look stranger than Mormons in the 1830s and 40s? So Americans complained about the Mormons and they passed legislation in the federal legislation to outlaw polygamy and attack Mormons physically through the federal government after the move to Utah and with vigilante groups in Missouri before the move to, to, uh, to Utah and assassinated Joseph Smith. Americans have trouble with all kinds of religious groups. Regrettably, it's part of our past, and it's probably part of our present, and it's probably going to be part of our future. So in that regard, I don't personally see, as a historian, I see it's just, you just add to the mix, that's all. We've always been adding to the mix, and it isn't just a Muslims, it's Sikhs, Hindus. We have a significant influx of a new variety of religious groups in the last 15 years. That's, I get, my view is, that's American history. It, it isn't much different than the 1690s. My perception has been that um, when you say, you know, uh, conservative, Catholics, Jews, Protestants come together for anti-abortion activity and, you know, those kinds of political activities. Uh, I don't see the liberal groups having any uh, religious affiliation in the same order of magnitude. My, my perception of the religious right has been that it is uh, really anti-immigrant, anti civil rights, anti-feminism, anti, you know, it's take us back to where we were 50 years ago in terms of WASP-dominated society, and we are going to organize uh, our congregations around political activity to, you know, fight back against all of this pluralism that is, you know, uh, destroying the fabric that we believed that we had of this, you know, WASP-dominated, you know, society where these other groups understood their place and would stay in their place and, you know, quit claiming to be part of the American fabric. And I don't see all these other religious groups uh, having that same, you know, political, you know, it's like they're part of the pluralist movement and pluralist side where the religious right, even among different religious groups, 
is really to get to, to take us back to a much more hierarchical, you know, WASP-dominated, uh, male-dominated view of what America could be. Yeah. All right. So I won't try to digest that question, uh, but that comment. I'll simply point out that if you read Ralph, if you read Ralph Reed, the who I think still is the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party and the former chairman of the Christian Coalition, um, what you will discover, I think, if you read Reed's publications, he has several books published in the late 1990s. Um, Reed will celebrate pluralism, so he wouldn't agree with you. And uh, uh, what he will, what I think all of most conservative leaders will it will acknowledge is that there isn't much presence in the conserv modern conservative movement uh, of of what we would call a kind of secular conservatism. And I think that that's generally true. And secular conservatism really probably has its base in the libertarian movement. The libertarian movement is not generally a movement in which you will find uh, conservative Christian evangelicals. But it is a conservative movement, but a conservative movement of a certain kind. I'd also suggest to you that if you were to take a look at the membership lists of the, of the ACLU, or of many, um, even women's rights organizations, especially local membership lists, not so much the national leadership, but the local leadership of, and in most any state, I'm going to suggest to you that overwhelmingly the names on the list are going to, will say, oh yes, well, I belong to this Presbyterian congregation, I I'm a Roman Catholic, I'm whatever. Uh, that may not be true for the absolute upper echelon, but even there I'd be a little and it's the same thing, I'm amazed, and I will, I will say this, um, America, the American professorate, for example, comes in for a lot of criticism these days as being overwhelmingly secular. Right? So I think if you were to take, if you were to look, run down a list of the Yale faculty, who I think are pretty typical, you would be very surprised at the degree of belonging among members of this faculty, a Harvard faculty, the University of Illinois faculty, the University of Michigan faculty, the University of Southern Illinois faculty, uh, the University of uh, Southern Connecticut State University faculty. Though that's not what we're known for, not what the professorate is known for. You would be, one would be quite surprised. And of course, in a society where belo religious belonging is, is rather common, it's really not surprising that you find it in all kinds of areas. So I won't uh, compete with your description of the, you know, what's true about the conservative movement or the liberal movement, because the conservative movement, I have to say, would define itself, would not accept your categorization. So I think we have to be fair. We, you and I would both agree with that. They wouldn't accept your categorizations. Um, and they would have a different way of putting it. And each time, what, what mantle does Ralph Reed or sometimes Jerry Falwell claim? They claim the mantle on abortion, they claim the mantle of the abolitionist movement. And they do it directly, not indirectly. And they will quote American abolitionists. They will make the argument that abortion is the equivalent of slavery. Do we, does everybody accept that argument? No. I'm simply trying to point out to you the way this dialogue emerges in public rhetoric and in the rhetoric of of each of these of these movements. The liberals tend not to deal very much in a religious vocabulary. Now, 
That I would make the argument, and here I, will, I won't be partisan, but I'll just try to be analytical. That has come at great cost to the Democratic Party. So let me give you an example. M many of people in this room probably watched Barack Obama's speech at the Democratic Convention in 2004, right? Probably many of you watched that. Let me suggest to you that that was a speech filled with religious and values imagery as much as most, if not all, speeches at the Republican Convention. And Democrats, didn't you think it was a great, those who watched it, I will bet thought it was a pretty great speech. And then what happened in the Democratic Convention? That was the end of that. And let me suggest that the, that was the end of that also played a role in costing the Democratic Party a victory in 2004. This is a very, very close election. We have forgotten about that. It's a very close election. What if the Democrats had used a different strategy? What if they had leaned over just a little bit to acknowledge the way that many Americans are living their lives, where many Americans, many Democrats see their values as coming from. They see their values as coming from their longtime membership in a Lutheran congregation, their longtime membership in a Roman Catholic church. That's, what they, that's how they see their membership in a Reformed Jewish congregation or a conservative Jewish congregation. In the Abyssinian Baptist Church of Harlem. That's where they see their values coming from. You'd never know it if you listened to the Democratic Convention. You wouldn't have a clue, not a clue. You, you would think that this all came from some kind of secular corporate headquarters uh, in which in, you weren't sure the Democrats had any values. And they certainly didn't have any religious roots. No one would want to say that. So imagine, look at the dance that the presidential candidate went through. Was he a Roman Catholic or wasn't he a, Ro wasn't he a Roman Catholic? No, here was a war veteran, pardon me, who squandered every issue. He squandered his, his, his service in Vietnam. He squandered the religious issue. Where was it? It's no wonder he lost. Well, if that's a harsh thing to say, it's important to remember, you know, campaigns are fought on critical perceptions of the public about how it is you, you appear to people. He appeared aloof, distant, someone who wasn't concerned with the, with, with the hopes and the aspirations of many Americans. And so they doubted, and then, hmm, well, maybe they wouldn't vote, or, all right, they'll vote for Bush. Okay. All it takes is that momentary decision. It doesn't make any difference what happened five minutes beforehand, and it doesn't make any difference what happened five minutes afterwards. They're going to have regret five minutes afterwards on either ballot, and it doesn't make a wit's worth of difference. But that ballot was cast out of certain perceptions. And my argument is that Democrats need, Democrats are like deer caught in the headlights on the religious issue. They don't know what to do. Somehow it seems embarrassing. You know, it wasn't embarrassing in 1960, let me tell you. It wasn't embarrassing in the least. And that was true where I grew up in rural Minnesota, where anti-Catholicism was still important, where it was still a common phenomenon. But it wasn't. Democrats weren't embarrassed that John F. Kennedy was a Roman Catholic, and John F. Kennedy wasn't embarrassed that he was a Roman Catholic. He set certain kinds of limits about what that meant. He wasn't embarrassed about it. 
So there was a price paid. And it was a price that also indicated the importance of religion in our politics. Thank you very much. I hope you have a great reunion. John Butler is Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences and the Howard R. Lamar Professor of American Studies, History, and Religious Studies at Yale University. This was recorded on May 26, 2006.